I'm Connor McReynolds, and welcome to another episode of The Dinner Party. Each week I interview a fantastic guest to learn all about their dream dinner party. We chat about who they would invite, where they would host their soiree, and what they would cook for their guests. This week I'm speaking to the brilliant Tiernan Duyeb. Tiernan is a fantastic stand-up comedian. He's also the host of the Partly Political Broadcast podcast. He co-runs the amazing comedy club for kids. I love his comedy, so I'm really excited to chat to Tiernan about the people that inspire him most. So here he is. This is the dream dinner party of Tiernan Duyeb. Great. Well, Tiernan, hello. Thank you so much for joining me on the dinner party. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a delight to be here. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, yeah. Sort of. Uh, we had a, a pre-record chat where I think I said to you that the correct response is always "I'm coping." I think at the moment is <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't. To, I wouldn't say I'm bad, but I wouldn't necessarily say I'm good. I'm just sort of, uh, you know, going. I'm running out of things to watch on Netflix. Is that I think that's a dire situation? <laughs> yeah, isn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Start all the free trials of all the other streaming services now. There's never yep. been a better time for a free trial of a streaming service. Oh, goodness. Um, if only they were months and months long. Have you, what have you been watching? Uh, I've just finished. We just finished last night the second season of Umbrella Academy, which I love so very much. Oh, and, and I've had this recommended to, to me. another year for another season. So This is the one with the kind of, it's sort of X-Men-ish, like Academy school thing. Is yes. that right? Yeah, but it's it's and, and I, I should say I'm a massive superhero fan. I watch a lot of superhero stuff, but this is uh, it's got a lovely self-deprecating sense of humour to it, and it is so surreal and slightly warped and uncomfortable um, in places. All the characters are they're not just super powered; they've got some sort of issues as well. <laughs> and oh um, yeah, <laughs> and it, and it, every character in it is fully fleshed out. There's never any loose ends. I just think it's so beautifully written and put together. Um, and also really makes me laugh. Uh, and uh, there's such a brilliant bunch of misfits that it's a, it's a really enjoyable watch. So yeah, oh, fantastic. So, yeah, really good. Well, that sounds like proper escapism at the moment. Mm. That sounds like exactly what we need. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, that's all I'm watching. I'm just watching things that are not at all based in reality. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> I mean, Good idea, yeah. I'm watching yeah. stuff where I'm like, oh, wow, their world's even worse than ours. That's great. That's really <laughs> relaxing. <laughs> A kind of we're doing fine by comparison with these yes. poor bastards kind of thing. That's it. That's exactly it. Well, Tiernan, uh, obviously at the minute it's it's so strange. You've not been kind of gigging and that kind of thing. But I want to talk to you about your comedy and, and almost... Let's sort of pretend everything's fine because I really want to know about your comedy career. First of all, like, when did you first know that comedy was what you wanted to be doing? Uh, it was uh, probably around the time I did a first gig. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, I well, I wanted to do. I always wanted to act it. I wanted to be on stage, and I really liked that. I liked um, being a, a drammy idiot and. Um, <laughs> showing off uh and i always sort of did lots of drama performances and it was always on stage and then um when i was at uni one of my courses or one of the courses you could choose if you were slightly lazy like me was uh, a stand-up course because it was only like a few hours a week and then a gig and i was like that sounds great <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and uh that first gig was possibly you know i felt sick to my stomach i was completely pale white and the second i stood on stage i immediately went oh, this is what I have always wanted to do in my life. Yeah. And um, it was just, uh, you know, that incredible experience. So I think it's the same for everyone, no matter how that first gig goes, even if it's horrific, you still know, oh, I must do that again, or I must never do that again. Yeah, absolutely. Do you remember what your, your material was for your first gig? 
Yeah, it was really silly stuff. I, I don't remember much of it. Um, but I, I've still, I mean, there were lines that I used for years after. So there was a line I used for a long time, which was um, Lionel Richie is both rich and looks a bit like a lion. <laughs> um, and that was a, a line that I used for a very long time afterwards. Um, and I had a whole bit about uh, making sports more interesting, which now, I mean, is quite a hack thing. But that was back in 2003, 2004. So maybe it was less hack. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it was all about, you know, changing uh, snooker so that when someone pocketed a ball, the pockets made a noise. <laughs> and then doing things like um, horse racing, having them be chased by wolves <laughs> and um, stuff like that. So it was, it was just all it was all really stupid. I didn't care about the world very much. So it was all wouldn't it be silly if stuff yeah which, uh, i i wish i could go back to well it's, it's <laughs> interesting because your your comedy now uh, i watched one of your shows on next up yesterday and it was great you talk about how you're very opinionated and having seen you before as well uh yeah i know that your comedy is very political your podcast obviously very political as well do you find that that kind of helps you that that style of comedy helps you find your audience and really narrow down kind of your people or does it present challenges, you know, possibly kind of alienating people in, in a clubby audience? Does it kind of have pros and cons or do you think you've sort of uh, found your people? Yeah, no, it's definitely got cons. Um, I, <laughs> um, yeah, it's weird because I, I sort of learned to find ways to tell it to a more clubby audience and to break it down and I'll mix it up. I'll do, if it's a really clubby audience, oh, the good old times when we had clubby audiences <laughs> and audiences, um, I would mix, uh, you know, I'd mix it with, I'd go in and I'd start with, say, stuff about being a dad um, and stuff about life at the moment or whatever, and then I'd bring in the politics once they trusted me. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas with audiences that I know are interested in it, I'll start with that straight away. So, you know, you, you learn to adapt it and change it depending on who the audience is. But I mean, I mean, to, to be honest, my big problem is I don't, I've never really intended to do political material so much as I am constantly bothered by politics right now. So it's all I want to talk yeah. about. And um, I remember somebody saying, oh, I don't remember somebody clever saying a while ago, I, I can't, I can't attribute this quote to anyone. I don't remember who it is. I've got no memory anymore. <laughs> um, but it was about the thing of like politics, you know, you, you don't happen to politics. Politics happens to you, whether you like it or not. And uh, I think increasingly as the world's become more and more just rubbish. And and also, I mean, I'm, I'm a middle-aged uh, white straight guy. I've got a very uninteresting life. I live with my <laughs> wife and my daughter. I have, you know, as much as times are particularly scary now, generally, I don't have, I don't do very many interesting things. I don't throw myself off mountains or I don't, you know, jump out. But I don't know the exciting. So my, the, the, my life is family and screaming at the television wishing the world was better for other people and so and that's what I want to talk about really and and I'm keen to find ways to make people digest it while laughing rather than crying yeah yeah I think that's a very a very uh welcome change of pace people making us laugh about it do you remember when that kind of change came in like was it just 2010 sort of May 2010 was it as sudden as that or uh it yeah, I mean, it really kicked off then, but it was it was a little bit before that. It was after sort of financial crash. Um, yeah. And I mean, I'd started to do little bits and pieces about, you know, years before about Iraq war and stuff like that, but it wasn't very good and I didn't really understand things. And I, I think it largely came from, uh, well, comedians such as Mark Thomas and Josie Long um, 
Mark, who I saw him do a, uh, I went to see one of his shows and thought it was astounding and it made me laugh and I learned a lot about it. It was about the arms trade. Um, it was called As Used on the Famous Nelson Mandela. And uh, it just blew me away that I could laugh and learn so mm. many things about how awful stuff is at the same time. And I had a chat with him afterwards and just said, you know, I queued up to get my book signed. I just said, I thought it was brilliant. And, you know, I'm a stand up and, and I wish I could do stuff like this. And he just said, oh, well, let's have breakfast sometime and talk about it. And I went, oh, oh OK. Wow. And he gave me his email and then we met up and had a chat and, and he really sort of talked to me about what is it I want to be saying and doing. And I was like, wow, I'd, I'd love to say stuff that means something and actually, you know, yeah. uh, has has a point to it. Um, and also Josie, who I've, I've known for a very long time, but but watching Josie become more and more politicized was um, a real incentive to do it, too. She's she was so brave very early on at just telling audiences how she felt about it all. Yeah. And uh, we did certain gigs together, especially after 2010. We did gigs like where we blocked off Westminster Bridge. There was a massive protest to stop cuts to the NHS uh, when they were doing big austerity cuts. And um, and Josie was on a number of other comedians. Were on. I remember standing on that bridge. There was about a thousand people there crowding around and um and we we just stood there and did gags about what was happening and it felt so moving and you really felt like god this is important i mean not that it changed a single thing but <laughs> it felt, you know that that sort of gig made me feel really alive and like all oh, right this is what we can do with this yeah um, that's amazing like... that that sounds so incredible i was i was glancing at your website uh ahead of this and you've just done so many kind of amazing sounding things that sort of blocking off Westminster Bridge for a comedy gig to a thousand people as part of a protest thing wasn't on your website but there were a couple of things that like <laughs> my jaw just dropped you had your back shaved by Gillian <laughs> Anderson <laughs> is that the weirdest yeah. thing you've done in comedy do you think yeah, it's definitely up there. I mean, it's it, it's a story I dine out with uh, for your for your podcast about uh, cooking for people, having dinner with people. This is definitely a story I dine out with on a regular basis. Um, but it's also it's it's slightly cheeky because really none of it was to do with me. In that uh, it was one of Mark Watson's long shows, which I, I've taken part in quite a few of them. Yeah, and um, for that one, it was twenty seven hours, and so my challenge or the challenge I gave myself, because I'm an idiot, firstly was uh, <laughs> that there's a film called 27 Dresses. So I thought, well, I'll wear 27 dresses through the course of the show, <laughs> and one an hour. And then also um, I had to have a horrible task happen to me or a horrible thing happen to me once every hour, mainly because Mark Watson decided that because he's an arsehole. <laughs> um, but uh, that hour I was wearing, a, I was wearing a, a, a dress that had a low back on it that someone in the audience had donated. <laughs> and... Um, Gillian Anderson popped in to help support the show and she saw me and she just immediately said, I want to shave his back. <laughs> and everyone went, hooray. Okay. Let's get people to donate and people donated enough. And then she crowdsourced from the live audience at the Pleasance a razor and they couldn't get any shaving cream. So she got some hummus <laughs> and um, she shaved my back with hummus. And then someone found some soap. They used soap and, uh, <laughs> My back was sore for days, but also 15-year-old me that fancied the pants of Gillian Anderson for a very long time yeah. was immensely confused that that's how I then <laughs> met her as she shaved my back with hummus in front of a live audience while I wore a dress. Uh, genuinely the weirdest thing. That That is <laughs> one of the most extraordinary stories. I, I would like to think as well, she would remember you. Like if you said, I'm the person that you shaved his back with hummus, she wouldn't be like, mm, which one? I've done that a few times. Well, let me tell you that there was, I think it was last year, there was uh, 
she obviously had the Instagram memory of a photo and she retweeted it and tagged and she reposted it and tagged me. In. Oh yeah. And honestly, like that was like, when the, I just felt so happy. <laughs> I was so pleased. If I, I really would like to meet her again in a, in a more normal circumstance and say, you know, Hey, so you shaved my back. I'd, I'd really love to talk to her. About it. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely incredible. One of the other things that really struck me uh, on your website, you went on stage after Robin Williams. I mean, yeah. how does that happen? Uh, yeah, that was completely nuts. And um, it was at the lovely outside the box in Kingston. And none of us knew he, he was going to be on. Right, so, so for a start, it's already an incredible lineup, right? I, I was on and Zoe Lyons. And then the middle section had Homage Lily and Al Murray on and Milton Jones. Oh, my God. And, um, so already like incredible. And I think Jeff Norcott was on as well. It's a brilliant lineup. Yeah. And um, and we're all and we just got told there was a special guest on in the middle and we thought oh, it would be someone Daro Brian used to pop in a lot lots of people used to pop in a lot to that gig so we thought it'd be someone like that and anyway uh, I think Zoe had to open she had to get back to Brian so she opened there was an interval second section starts Omid's on while Omid's on suddenly there's a knock on the back door the stage door and um, the 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 stage manager goes and opens it and about six bodyguards are all dressed in black with black shades they look like men in black like total <laughs> stereotype um and they walked in with robin williams in the middle of them and then another sort of like four people dressed in security and they all come in robin comes up to everybody shakes our hands and says oh it's lovely to meet you how you doing what's you know uh oh, when are you on have you been on he was like so friendly and so warm and i said to him wait when are you on and he was like oh, i'm going to, i think i'm going on next and i said oh i have to i think i have to follow you <laughs> and he was like oh you know i followed this incredible comedian once in new york and um you know and he was like most famous person at the time and i was like how'd it go and he said oh i died on my ass but it was hilarious <laughs> and I'm like oh great thanks and um and it was so surreal and weird and then uh math brown who was comparing he walked on stage after al murray and said to the audience and next up we've got robin williams give him a round of applause and everyone started clapping like normal and then as robin williams walked on stage the clapping suddenly became like they just went oh him oh my god <laughs> and they just went nuts and the room was electric and he performed for 15 minutes and just blew the place out of the water it was incredible oh my god and then um there was a very small interval and then I had to go on and I had an incredible gig because the room was so excited. Yeah. People were so buzzing. And I did some stupid joke about him being my lovely support act. And then I did some <laughs> joke about how he shook my hands. So I think he left flubber on it or something, it was something rubbish <laughs> like that. And, um, but anyway, it then I just then had an incredible sort of 20 minutes because it was like, actually, People were so full of good energy because yeah. they'd had such a lovely night that um, it would have been very hard to go wrong, I think. Um, but it's very, it was very surreal. That is very so surreal amazing. I mean, I mm. think if, if that had happened to me, I think I just would have stopped comedy kind of there and then. Like, <laughs> I'd have been like, well, it's not going to get better than this. <laughs> but you've done... I, mean, I, probably, I probably should have done <laughs> You've done so many amazing things. Like, you're one of the producers behind Comedy Club for Kids, which is just one of the best things in the world um uh, you very kindly let me perform once at it and i learned firsthand how fucking difficult it is <laughs> i kind of thought like you had a kids time. like me <laughs> you know i sort of thought that but they well well tell us about comedy club for kids because it's it seems to me like such a an extraordinary skill to nail down to do really well at that gig. Like I was on with you, Paul Duncan McGarrity, Jay Foreman, 
such a great lineup and you guys had obviously done it a lot and were so good at it. There was no fluff. Everything you said the kids loved. But tell us about Comedy Club for Kids and, and how you got into that. Um, well, I mean, for a start, it, it takes everyone a while to get good at it. Like everybody, n- nobody gets good at it immediately. Everybody has at least to, has to at least do it once and go, oh, that's <laughs> that's what it's like. Yeah. And then it takes a good three or four other goes to really nail down how on earth you talk to kids. I think <laughs> yeah. so very few people get to like pick it up instantly. Um, I thought you did great though. You were oh, brilliant. Oh, thank you, mate. That's very um, yeah, I remember you talked about your job, your job interview. Didn't yes, you? I did. Oh, thank you for yeah. remembering. That's yeah, very yeah. kind. Yeah. Oh, it's very good. And the kids thought it was hilarious. I think all the all the silly questions you were asked. I think that's the key to it is that you've got to do stuff that you've got to do stuff that children understand. Like kids understand loads. Kids are ridiculously smart. Yeah. But if it's not within their field of what they care about, they just won't react to it. So some years ago and i'll never name this comedian's name but it's often the one i bring up i remember a comedian who was very funny doing a lovely bit about dinosaurs that he thought was hilarious and then went into a bit about at the time the financial crash which was clean but absolutely they couldn't give a shit about it and just got bored and started playing games doing other stuff and it's it's got to be within their field of what they care about. Yeah, um, yeah. It doesn't matter if it, it's not just that it's clean. It's for ki- the whole point is that the kids are our audience. Yeah. And um, so we've got to make it for them. And that's, that's what's key. Um, but I didn't, I, I didn't create it. A comedian called James Campbell created it some years ago. And he now is a, a writer and writes lots of books and stuff. Um, and he handed over the comedy club kids to myself and two others uh, after a few years. Cause he, he didn't really want to run it anymore. Um, but I, I, I just find it like, you know, I, I tell adults how terrible everything is and I get to tell kids how brilliant everything <laughs> oh, is. And I think nice. that balances me out in my head <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah, a, in a lovely yeah. way. Do you, you know? do you have a preference? Like, do you prefer being in front of the kids or do you prefer being able to let loose and kind of get things off your chest with adults? Or are they just two sort of completely different things that you couldn't have a preference? They're sort of different things. I think I prefer adults. I mean, I, I find it easier to write for adults because I am one and yes. I have stuff in my head. And I, I actually, I, I've got a lot of kids material, but I don't write kids material as often as I'd like to because I find to get into that headset, that sort of headset, the, the mindset. I don't just put it like <laughs> um, to get into the mindset. I, I kind of have to like really be in a certain mood or um, like I'm, I'm really I can always improvise for kids really easily. Yeah. But to write for them takes uh, I don't know. I need to be in a certain creative mood. So whereas for adults, I'm always angry about everything being fucked. So I can write that. Brilliant. Uh, Tyrant, very quickly, uh, I have to ask you because it is, we're recording on the 4th of August. Uh, normally, I'm assuming today would be near enough, like the first day of the festival. Is that right? Or Yeah. Uh, or tomorrow, probably it'd be the Wednesday. The Wednesday, yeah. tomorrow. How does it feel not being there? It's odd. Well, do you know, the funny thing is I, ha- I hadn't been for two years because my daughter is two oh, and that has right, yeah. uh, stopped me that I just couldn't, I, well, I couldn't write an hour when I hadn't slept for two years. <laughs> so I just, I couldn't work it out. And so I'd, I'd uh, yeah, I just hadn't been for two years and I was really missing it. And I was actually really planning to go back this year, oh. if not for a full month, uh, but for half um, a run yeah. at least just to go up Um and it's odd. I think it's it's particularly odd not seeing anyone else talk about it, not seeing anyone else do their show. Suddenly seeing a whole load of comedians having 
nothing to do or to focus on um yeah it's nice not spending seven thousand pounds <laughs> on, <laughs> on that, like just burning money but I mean, I'm actually I'm going up to see some friends uh, in a week's time. I've got some friends that live in Leith and I haven't seen them oh, in, a, in a while. Oh, lovely! And so, um, yeah, but we're going to go up and visit them, and the fringe won't be on. And I'll be walking around Edinburgh in August without it on. I can't work out if that's going to completely freak me out or be really lovely. Yeah, and I haven't I haven't figured it out yet. It's kind of like that feeling that I remember when I finished uni and I had to go back during that summer to like clean the house out. And I remember walking through, I went to Winchester and walking through Winchester and it just felt like a different city because there were no students around. My friends weren't there and it felt really weird. I I imagine that's what Edinburgh feels like during August when all the comedians aren't there. Yeah, a bit like you, you don't belong anymore. That sort of feeling of, oh, it's not your place anymore. Yeah. And yeah. it's like I've been to Edinburgh sort of, you know, to do the stand or do whatever outside of fringe time, but it's always been in at least a different month. Yeah. Um, I once had to do Edinburgh Uni two weeks after Edinburgh Fringe finished, so I came home and then had to fly back oh, up. Oh, God. And, and that was really <laughs> weird. You see all, like, the posters are torn and there's, like, remnants of flyers <laughs> on the floor and it feels like a sort of, like a dystopian. <laughs> the Fringe was once here. And um, that was odd uh so we'll see but i might have to i might just sort of print some flyers just so my wife can harass me with them or, so, or i can harass her with them as we're walking around just so i can feel more at home <laughs> rather than go cold turkey that sounds like a very good plan that's it <laughs> uh, brilliant right tiernan i should really ask you about your dinner party it's why we're here your dream dinner party before we get into the specifics of it uh, do, do you enjoy throwing a dinner party? You strike me as someone who would be a very good dinner party host. Uh, it's tricky. I, I love, I, I really love cooking. I really love cooking. And like um, uh, lockdown's been that weird thing of uh, really being excited that I've had time to cook loads of stuff. And then also getting to a point where it's like, I never want to cook again in my life. <laughs> I've done this every day and I'm sick of it. Um, and also having a two-year-old makes you strange with cooking because what you do is you learn that you spend ages cooking a meal and then she just doesn't eat it and then you have to throw it away after like two days uh of like hoping oh, maybe she'll have it for lunch tomorrow no maybe she'll have it for dinner tomorrow. no and then you're like all that time and effort for nothing um but uh but um yeah so i love cooking and, and i do love seeing people but i i do find a bit the, the sort of stress of preparing for people can be less fun yeah. you know like try, having to get things ready for people where, whereas you know you don't get to really sit and chat to everyone because you're too worried about things being cooked or yes uh, yeah. you know, whereas going like for a meal with friends is so much nicer where you get to sit there and you know you don't have to wash up afterwards that's and, always uh, a bonus yeah <laughs> yeah well what kind of uh vibe do you think there would be at, at a dinner party thrown by you like would it be a kind of calm and, and just really like stimulated by really interesting conversation kind of thing or is it lots of laughs kind of we're on to our fourth bottle of wine and things are just getting fun kind of party what sort of tone yeah, do you I'd go for a, i'd kind of hope for a combination i'd want it to be like chilled i want like chill music on i want this all to be like it's just like hey we're just here for a chat it doesn't matter like you know what we chat about mm -hmm. but i think in that i would hope that there are moments of interesting conversation followed by moments of absolute childish depravity <laughs> um, you know, I, I like i like a mix of uh you know like my, my closest friends i'd say are really good at doing a mix of chatting about some really interesting things and then saying really fucking stupid stuff <laughs> and, and, and 
ruining it in in the same space of an evening and that's that's what i like i like i like a complete lack of pressure on having to perform for someone you know like yeah. i think the, the whole thing is we're doing comedy as a job i hate the idea of then having to do it in real life or be on stage in real life for yeah, people yeah 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 that's that's a very good point i, I think i was speaking to I think it was lovely Ben Pope. I don't know if you know Ben, great stand-up comedian. No, I don't. Ben's fantastic. And uh, I think he was saying like his experience of kind of funny people is that like, you're also funny off stage. Like most comedians, most good comedians are just like usually kind of naturally funny people anyway. And so it's nice to spend time with the comedians that you really like, because you're probably going to have a really good laugh with them anyway. And without giving away any of your guests, I think you've got a really good lineup of people that you will have a good laugh with them that night without feeling like you have to kind of be on. Um, but let's find out, Tiernan, where your dinner party would be. So if you could host it uh, anywhere in the world. Yeah, well, I, w- I was sort of going for really crazy, elaborate. So I, I'm I'm really missing being anywhere else other than my <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm really missing traveling. And I'm I'm kind of torn between... So my two favorite, the two best places I've ever been in my life, I think, were Japan and Iceland. Oh, and I'm really torn between... I either want, I either want it to be like uh, sort of somewhere in Reykjavik overlooking all the mountains of the sea, and that would be like just the best place in the world. Or I kind of want it in... Um, in in japan on an outdoor balcony in the summer so it's nice hot weather and we can look over like uh, miyajima where there's the beautiful mountain and the giant uh, inari gate and i want it i want it to be somewhere with a beautiful view yeah but we can sit outside and and i think this is because basically i'm just uh, this is like my um you know i'm just projecting everything i'm dreaming of doing right now <laughs> this situation i mean, i just want to be sitting outside with a cold beer and some friends in a hot place and i can see the sea and i can see some beautiful scenery and that is what i really want oh, that and also perfect. ideally i'd like it to be say in a restaurant that's let me use the restaurant and no one else could come yes. in that would be like a dream situation i'll cook you all can sod off it's your restaurant's mine tonight. That's what I'd love. <laughs> that is absolutely perfect. That sounds blissful. All right. So we know where we'd be. Uh, we know the tone we're going for. Now it's time to talk about your first dream dinner party guest. And she is one of the most driven and impressive people in world politics. And she's only 30 years old. It's it's almost infuriating. Yep. <laughs> Why are you inviting Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Um, because I, I admire her so much. And I mean, I just, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because like, I, I, I could have changed my guests that you asked me about this. Uh, like every day, every day there's different people. Yeah. That go, oh, I think they're amazing. Um, and, and I find it a bit odd that the five I sent you are all American. I'm not sure why. <laughs> yeah. So brilliant, it's interesting. Brilliant people from around the rest of the world that I also love. <laughs> um, but these were five that were just in my head on the day you asked me. Yeah. And, and I think Alexandra Casey-Cortez, I just, oh, I, I wish... Um, I mean, well, I, I wish I could be that coherent and passionate and um, strong in my belief. She, she's got an absolute not give a shit attitude about telling people how she sees a, a better future. And I think that, that, uh, this is a, a sort of a silly thing, but I think a lot of the times the the arguments against, um, well, let's let's say so, social democracy or socialism are 
always quite petty, I find. And I am not very good at arguing about them or trying to tell people why they're not petty. I often find that I think in my own head, oh, I'm not intelligent enough just to say this. And she's really good at just standing up going what you're saying is bullshit we need to like live yeah. in the future and not be not live in pollution and not die and people need to earn enough money and just be she's just really strong and confident about um portraying that and she can communicate in a way that not enough politicians do politicians are either terrible at communicating a lot of politicians they too vague and mumbly and don't really get the point across and and it's all sort of twisted in lots of words or boris likes to throw in loads of bloody latin or, or references that don't actually make sense when you break it down um or you know or or politicians are i, I don't know I, I find that they they just don't get the point across enough and mm -hmm. i find as a comedian i watch a lot of politicians think if any of you had had comedy training at all you would be better at this. Yes. You'd be better at delivering. Um, and Alex AOC, you know, sh she manages to convey what she thinks in a really clear manner, but also in a manner that everyone can understand. And it sort of crosses generations. People know that she's passionate and is herself. Mm -hmm. And she can be very fun with it too and uh the fact that she went on animal crossing recently as her character and met other islands and talked to them about their <laughs> protests and stuff and i was like this is beautiful why aren't more people embracing this kind of uh attitude you know i i think that there's um part of my issue with politics and i'll try not to talk about this for too long but the my issue with a lot of politics moment is i think that we're all stuck in wanting to do politics how they have been before yes. whether that's from a left-wing or right-wing perspective a lot of politics is always we need things to be back how they were or we need uh you know socialism that it was in the 70s and it's actually we're in a constantly changing world and i think uh, I, alexandra ocasio-cortez sort of um embodies a possibility of doing politics in a in a in a way that the future needs um if i, I don't know if i've put that in the correct way but you know yeah. it, we need things that, that deal with our changing world and she's someone who i think it embodies that perfectly so i think you're there you absolutely go. I just right. adore her. <laughs> yeah i mean she's she's just amazing and everything you've said there is so true you've also said that she does things and it can't be understated how important it is that she does things in a fun way like she enthuses people about politics when sometimes politics feels like a competition between two extremely monotonous groups and sort of the winner is the person who just kind of gets the other side to tap into submission, like, oh, I can't be bothered with this anymore. Whereas she yep. is fun and alive and makes politics feel relevant to to people to whom it hasn't felt relevant before. Uh, but that's well, it is also a lack of um, shape. Like, like I think about the time there was a video going around from her from some years ago of her dancing. I think it was on a video. Yeah. And lots of these kind of Republicans were using it going, look at her, such an idiot. And she kind of came out going, I was having a really good time. Why wouldn't you want to dance? Exactly. What kind of fucking yeah. idiot doesn't like dancing? And everyone's like, oh, yeah. And it's and it's re. You know, there's all these things like I think back to sort of, for example, when uh, from top of my head, Diane Abbott got shamed for drinking a G&T on the train or whatever, <laughs> yeah. and everyone attacked her and Diane Abbott said, oh, I'm really sorry I should have done it. Um, and part of me feels like actually if politicians like, you know, like Ocasio-Cortez just went, fuck you, I was enjoying a drink. Like, what do you want? I'm a person. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, I live my life and, you know, they're, they're always, especially 
right wing versus left wing, there's always a lot of standards that they want left wing politicians to live up to that 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 no one else lives up to <laughs> that no one else does yeah 100%. and uh, i like that uh aoc just goes yeah fuck you i'm i'm having i'm enjoying my life yeah but you get i'm not evil it's refreshing <laughs> you know? isn't it it's just brilliant well mm. what what do you think she's bringing to your dinner party your kind of the evening i don't mean in terms of like a bottle of wine and a box of chocolates type thing but like what kind of qualities do you think your your dinner party gets from having her there I I would like to imagine that having a chat with her would would be a bit like I said with my friends. I think that we'd probably have some genuinely good chats about the state of things and but but in a sort of positive way of like what we need to do. But I also like to think that would be mixed up with her getting quite drunk and mm-hmm. telling some really funny stories, <laughs> <laughs> just being a dick. And and that's that's what I'd want. I'd want that kind of let's you know. <clears throat> throw in some really good stuff but by the end of the night we're all just like dancing on the table and being dickheads yes that's that's what i'd want yeah that would be great fun i spoke to suze kempner on the podcast last week and she actually invited diane abbott to hers and she was saying one thing she would really want from diane abbott would be for diane to get a bit tipsy and then share some gossip about people in westminster that you're probably not supposed to know and i get the sense that aoc would bring something similar like oh do you really <laughs> want to know the truth about lindsey graham okay i think that That'd would be, be a lot of fun <laughs> is there a Absolutely. particular kind of issue or aspect of her career or or your shared politics that you would really want to pick her mind about like is there one issue she's spoken about that you just been floored by uh that's tricky i don't know i mean, I, I really think her whole because her recent um re-election where the democrats actually stood another candidate against her that was sort of backed by wall street and she still got entirely voted in by her community because <laughs> and they totally ruined their plans which is incredible but i i think generally i think her attitude towards the sort of the green new deal and the um you know policies like that i think are, are just fascinating it's, it's difficult i find that every week she did an incredible speech this week about sort of uh sexist violent sexist comments against uh women in oh politics. yeah just, she spoke you so just well. read the speech and go oh it's so good you just you make the point so well <laughs> like, <brilliant>. <laughs> <laughs> you just knock them back so brilliantly i'd like her to be in charge of everything oh, her yes, and jacinda please. arden i think i was just about please. to say jacinda arden as well yeah <laughs> the two of them <laughs> You know, with special guest cameos from like Finland's five female ministers. Yeah, uh, yeah, that would be pretty cushy. Um, I try to like find a kind of a sort of an interesting fact about uh, about all the different guests, and and you know, I think everybody kind of knows most of the stuff about AOC because her her story is so interesting, kind of unique. Like, obviously, Trump calls her the bartender because she was working in a bar while she was originally running for office. Uh, but at the time, like, she was also running or like getting her degree in international relations and economics. Like At 30 years old, she's more qualified to run the country than him. Yeah. And like, do you think those attacks on her, like, I, I for me, they just play to her strengths. What do you Absolutely. think? Absolutely. I mean, also, like, you know, being a bartender, like, what better job for dealing with people? I, I don't know if you've yes. ever worked in a bar, uh, I, but, you know, I worked in a restaurant. I was a waiter for a long time. And oh my God, you learn how to be patient with people, how to deal with difficult people. You learn all the different types of people. You come up against so many human situations. That I honestly think, why, you know, why would you criticize someone for having life experience before then dealing with people? Like, it's the most. You know, I much <laughs> yeah. I trust that far more than someone who's just been 
given a load of money by their dad and spent their life conning people. You know, it, it's um, it's such a weird thing that we're, we're meant to... Fra- this is what I mean, though, the, the kind of criticism of like, oh, look at her, she had a normal job like a normal person would. It's actually like, no, that's brilliant. Those are the people we need representing yeah. other people that do those jobs. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. Well, AOC, what a brilliant first guest for a dinner party. Like, I, I, I mean, as we've said, I think she'd be so fun and upbeat. I have to admit, I'm not as sure that guest number two would be <laughs> fun and upbeat, but maybe I'm wrong. Tell yeah. me why you're inviting Tom Waits. Well, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna be upfront here. I, I'm a massive music fan, right? And I like a lot of music. And actually, I I went through several rappers that I really like that I wanted to invite first, and then I kind of went, no, I'm gonna, I don't know. I thought I'd change things up and be a bit weird instead. But I, <laughs> Tom Waits is someone whose music I I well, I admire his music so much because it's it took me a long time like a long time to get into it. A friend of mine. Uh, back at uni introduced me to Nighthawks at the Diner which I loved so much because it was more bluesy jazzy it's really funny there are moments in it that are like stand-up and that was from his kind of 70s jazz phase and then he went into a far more weird disjointed phase of music that took me longer to get into and now I love uh, things like um, Rain Dogs and Bone Machine and and stuff really weird and then that kind of he, he changed again and his music's always sounded just like how he wanted to make it. And I think creatively he's only ever done what Tom Waits has wanted to do. And it will yeah. only ever sound like Tom Waits. And it, it's, um, I'm going to quickly refer to someone else, but the, like Tom York, who was another possible guest I was going to put in, but I didn't. Yeah. Um, I remember hearing him on a podcast once and they asked him about Radiohead, why they always make different albums. Why didn't they make OK Computer seven times over? And he said, well, as an artist, you know, I'm I'm changing as a person. I listen to different things every week. I watch different things. I grow. I learn. If I didn't make music that represented me changing, I'd be lying to my audience. And I've always thought that as a comedian, that's like as any performer, like that's amazing advice. And um, Tom Waits is that is very much that he's he's never made what I think anyone would want him to. He's always just gone, what's in my mad head today? <laughs> I'm yeah, going to play it. Yeah. And um, I heard a lovely story from, uh, again, I'm not going to be able to attribute this properly, but it was from a musician friend who had another musician friend who was a session artist for Tom Waits and turned up and uh, Tom was asking everyone what they did. And this guy said, oh, I play drums. And Tom Waits said, okay, you're on piano. And... <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> and would purposefully mess things up to get a more interesting sound out of it. And I love that experimentation. I love that daring Amazing. to do something different. I mean, hey, he might be the most awkward as fuck guest. He might be <laughs> like, this might completely disjoint the whole evening. Everyone would be like, well, we'd have had fun if it wasn't for weird Tom Waits scowling in the corner. But I like to think he'd be, I don't know. He's a, can also, he also sounds like he could be really good fun at times and, and really silly. And, yeah. you know, he can go off on weird tangents. So, he seems to me someone chat. who you might be in the middle of a conversation, you and maybe your four other guests, and Tom Waits seems like the kind of guy who would throw in a sentence that would completely change the course of everything and it would be mad, <laughs> but brilliant yeah, and uh, really relevant. That's it. He's got a sort of David Lynchian kind of thing to him where I just sort of feel like he'd say, it's funny though, because I've heard interviews with him that are quite sort of straight interviews about his career and he does talk quite normally and answers questions quite normally. Um, and I think, you know, I do, I do think he's probably got that thing like many performers of a different persona when he is on stage and, uh, or, or singing. But I, I do think that, yeah, you'd be in the middle of having a chat with Acacia Cortez about, you know, uh, 
some sort of incredible way to end homelessness and he'd suddenly talk about this time he saw like a, a dog kill a cat by the bins or something. It'd be like something completely <laughs> weird. Just like, I once saw a raccoon eat a cow, you know, or something like that. Like, oh, Jesus. All right. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting energy to bring to a dinner party, but I'm down with it. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd change. I mean, it was nearly like I nearly put in Kendrick Lamar because I love him so very much. But I, I but I just thought Tom Waits is I kind of, you know, if you can have anyone in the world, you may as well make it interesting for everyone, I guess. A hundred percent. And you've talked about uh, how kind of eclectic and varied and constantly evolving his music is. Is that what sort of most excites you about him or because he's also like a very multidisciplined guy? I mean, he's a phenomenal actor as well. Mm. He's written soundtracks for movies and that kind of thing. Um, so what is it that sort of makes him such an exciting figure to you? He's, I mean, I, I mean, very basically, his voice. His voice is one of the most incredible things yeah. I've ever heard. And I yeah. I sometimes really dream of having a really incredible voice. Like, you know, like something, something like that, where you hear his <laughs> voice and there's no way it could be anyone else on earth. But I think it is, I, I think his like I said, there's a sort of, um, while he's, he's a brilliant actor, he's brilliant at portraying other characters, but there is a sort of purity to everything he does that you just know it's him and you know that it's come from him somewhere in his head. And, um, I, I really admire that. I really admire any artist that can deliver you a wide array of different things, but at the same time, it still is their voice. Ultimately. Um, Mm -hmm. there's something really, exciting about that but yeah i just want to i just want to be able to talk like tom wait that kind of like <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned his voice that sort of thing <laughs> it's incredible you know <laughs> it's so interesting that you mention his voice because uh, i i find i'm well there were lots of interesting facts about tom waits when i i mean you type in tom <laughs> waits facts and you disappear down uh, an internet wormhole but uh did you know that heath ledger supposedly partly based his joker voice on tom waits yes i heard about that there's a fascinating interview did you watch the interview yeah, that the, the interview is so joker-esque when you watch it obviously it came years before but yeah the, all the body language is it's almost richard the third-esque his body language in that yeah, it's kind of it's absolutely phenomenal. But I mean, then. this is the thing as well is as a comedian, and I really uh, recommend checking out Nighthawks at the Diner is a live album. I think is it, is it nineteen seventy four? I probably got that completely wrong. Probably made that up. Um, but it's it's in a, <laughs> it's in a bar and he's playing the piano, and it's got um it's got gags in it where like he'll suddenly say, "I'm so horny, the crack of dawn better be careful around me," and it's like, <laughs> God, these are amazing one liners, you know, and um like. He he basically is a, a singing comedian in that, and and as a, it's like listening to a beautiful, com- well, like a comedy album with some really beautiful songs in the middle of it. It's yeah. Incredible. Oh, I'm gonna have to check that. I, that sounds really fascinating. The other thing that I saw about Tom Waits that I think would be brilliant for a dinner party is apparently he keeps a notebook of interesting facts on him at all times, <laughs> and apparently. <laughs> He, when he hears something he likes, he'll just take out his notebook and just jot down a little fact. The one that I saw on the on the internet that apparently was in uh, an example that he gave from his notebook was that the average cockroach can live for up to two weeks after decapitation. I mean, <laughs> imagine chatting about the Green New Deal with AOC and then suddenly, oh yeah, cockroaches. <laughs> I think that's that's super fun. And that's yeah. something I think I want to start myself, my little notebook of fascinating facts. 
Ah, oh, that's. I mean, I, we should all be doing that. Why isn't everyone doing that? Doing it, it would make all those, all those, all, like if you've ever been to a sort of party where there is an awkward moment, that and then you can just pull out that thing. And go, hey, everyone, what about when cockroaches <laughs> are dead though? And like, it's just like, oh my god, I'm, yeah, <laughs> so good. Well, that is brilliant. I mean, such a great left field. I actually had someone else, one of your other guests, down as the wild card for the dinner party. And oh, I right. really yeah, I don't know, know why Tom Waits wasn't the wild card. Maybe you have two wild cards. That's pretty wild in itself. Yeah, well, possibly. Th- <laughs> your third guest, though, uh, is someone that I would be inviting to my dream dinner party. We clearly have a shared love of this man's creations. He is just one of the best people who's ever lived. You're inviting Jim Henson to your oh. dinner party. Yeah, I do you know what it's it like even thinking about the Jim Henson funeral makes me cry. Like it is genuinely one of the saddest things that ever happened. I don't if you ever I don't know if you've ever watched it. Have you ever watched the, the video of the Jim I've, Henson funeral? I've read about it and I've never felt oh, strong enough to watch it. <laughs> it will break me on the happiest of days. It's too it's when when all the the puppeteers and their muppets are singing. Yeah. Oh oh no, it's I even think about it now. It's I his the fact that he died so so young is, I think, yeah. one of the like the greatest of tragedies. Uh, he yeah. just had the most incredible, yeah, as you say, creative mind, and not just like, oh my god, I love the Muppets so much. And I and I I was speaking to you in a week where the new Kermit voice makes me so angry. I want to like break stuff. Yeah, um, it's, it's tough. It's so bad. I it's, can't watch. Really I can't watch the new Muppets now. It's so bad. Um, yeah. um, but I think not just the Muppets, which had. More than anything, I think Muppets was very funny and there's so many things to talk about, but it had such heart. It had such heart and goodwill behind mm-hmm. it. And um, and the same with Sesame Street. I learned so much from, so much when I was a kid from Sesame Street. But everything <laughs> he did, all the way from the storyteller and Labyrinth um, and those beautiful kind of one-off films he did about the boy who who sort of discovers a dragon, this created, this a dragon that yeah. puppeteer makes. And if you, um, I can't remember what that one's called. And the Dark Crystal. Everything he's done feels like... the. Uh, I don't know the the worlds that I want to be in. I want to. I just want to be in those worlds and absorb everything about them. Um, and I, I think it was just such a, an incredible mind to come up. Yeah, with. and I I, I really think. I mean, I I admire so much of the design of his work, and you know, some great characters, some great stories, such great humor. But I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about like the heart and the spirit of Jim Henson creations. They're yeah. so inclusive and warm and positive and hopeful. And I just can't imagine how anybody couldn't be a fan of Jim Henson and the Muppets and Sesame Street and Labyrinth and everything because they're and, just so joyous. Yeah, and the way he worked with him, everyone talks about working with him as like being part of a family. Like if you ever sort of hear interviews of, of puppeteers mm-hmm. that worked with him and they were like, well, it's... It's like you were just getting to take part in this beautiful, with this beautiful group of friends, you know. And and there was like, I was watching um because I was very angry about the Kermit voice this week. I was watching a, an interview with with Steve Whitmore who'd done the Kermit voice until yeah. he was recently fired by Disney. It's all oh, it's so horrible. And Steve was talking about you know they were saying one of his big issues with Disney is that they they were saying oh you know well Kermit's just a part anyone can we can get someone else to do the voice. And he was saying no the whole thing of Jim Henson was 
no, the Muppet and the puppeteer should be inseparable. We are, we yeah. are these characters, yeah. and we are bringing ourselves to it, and that's what makes it so special. And sort of even hearing him say that was like, God, it's so sad that that these these beautiful creations can be taken away and turned into franchises when actually it's not about that. It's all about this group of misfits who are doing their very best to pull something off for the benefit of everyone, you know, and, and and Kermit's character was God, a hero to me. I think uh, it's such a weird thing to say about a puppet, but you know, I think in terms of leadership skills and also being so diplomatic and so wanting the best for everyone, yeah. Everyone oh, should have those such morals. Such a good you know. friend. Like, he's just yeah. such a great guy. Well, that yes. I think that almost answers. I was going to ask you if Jim could bring any Muppet with him to dinner. Would it be Kermit? It would have to be Kermit. I mean, yeah. and I love so many of the others, but it would have to be... Like like I said, I I wish Kermit was my friend, and that's such a <laughs> funny yeah. way it's a puppet. But um, I mean, not new Kermit, not new voice Kermit. He can fuck <laughs> off. But the other Kermits, I wish he was my friend. <laughs> I was lucky enough a few years ago, and I've I'm pretty sure I've bored all my friends to tears with this story. But I was lucky enough to be an extra in the last Muppet movie <sighs> when it was filming no. at Pinewood. Yeah. So you know the scene, uh, you know how they're doing this tour and they take the tour to Ireland and there's there are a few bits that you see in the theatre in Ireland. I was one of the audience members in the theatre watching the show. Oh my God. And I mean, it was like a proper dream come true. Like I got to sit in a theatre watching Muppets performing on stage. It was ridiculous. But the thing that I really took... Well, there were two things that I took away from the day. One of them was uh, that between takes, you would think that the Muppeteers, like their arms would get tired. Just on a practical level, having to hold your arm up for that long, you'd be exhausted. But these guys care so much about how the Muppets are perceived for people that between takes... The Electric Mayhem were down in the orchestra pit and they were just like the the Muppets were chatting to each other and flicking through their sheet music and animal like hitting other Muppets on the head with (laughs) drumsticks and stuff. And like the Muppets were in between takes and the performers were always on. But it meant that we were sat in the theater while the, you know, on stage, the cameras were being reset and all that stuff and makeup was being touched up. But we were just able to watch the Muppets just being themselves and it was it was one of the best things I've ever seen. But I also oh had this God. wonderful encounter with Walter, who I really love as a new Muppet. It's tough to be a, a kind of a new Muppet coming into something so beloved. Um, but I think Walter kind of nailed it because Walter is essentially us, isn't he? Like yes. he loves the Muppets every bit as much as we do. And so Walter came on to set uh, for another scene in which it was it was like outside, and I had to walk past Ricky Gervais when he was doing something dodgy. And Walter was brought on by this guy with a beard who I didn't recognize. And I said to the the other background artist that I was with, I was like, oh, my God, there's Walter. Oh, he's amazing. He's my ringtone. I love him so much. And it was actually Peter Lintz, the Muppeteer who performs Walter, who was bringing him on. So Peter Lintz comes over, puts Walter on and has this conversation with me as Walter. 
And I was just like, oh, my God, Walter, I love you so much. And midway through the conversation, Peter Lintz sort of said to me, hi, I'm Peter, by the way. And I just looked over and I was like, hi, Peter. And then just started talking to Walter again. (laughs) (laughs) And it only occurred to me on the way home. That's quite rude to have done that. But hopefully, I think he would understand it's just born out of how much But it's not rude, though, because it's his his art. Like, you know, I think that their skill is making you think the puppets are are the, the person that you're talking to and it, it's um, i am I, um, this is not as good as your I, i'm incredibly jealous of that story and i have to say i think <laughs> i wasn't the biggest fan of that muppet movie the one before when they brought it back i think it was one of the most yeah it was so lovely ever. um but the i i got to i i filmed a pilot for a kids tv show some years ago that had puppets in it and um it never got made and it was a really exciting oh. idea it was all about um all these creatures that lived in a in basically a kid's like laundry pile and they're it's called a grunge and they're all like one they're all made out of smelly socks or stained shirts and stuff oh, that brilliant. sounds awesome and um it was really awesome it was myself and uh pippa evans i'm trying to remember who else was involved in it we had a few it was all comedians and we got taught to puppeteer by a guy called mac wilson and mac wilson was hoggle in labyrinth um oh. and he's been various characters in sesame street and often played penguins in various muppet things oh, and wow. and it was incredible i mean he was amazing but just he he taught us how to move your hand so that it became a mouth, you know, and how to vocalize different sounds and vowels. Yeah, but whenever yeah. he talked to us, we watched his hands and we didn't talk to him. And we never, you just like you, we'd suddenly go, oh yeah, sorry, we're talking, yeah. Matt's face is there. <laughs> but he'd just be like having a bare hand and fa- having it in the shape of a mouth and we'd be talking to it because he was so brilliant. It's such <laughs> a mad skill, go, isn't it? Oh my God. It's incredible. I mean, because it's it takes away like everything that is kind of uh, like hardwired into us about human interaction. Where like obviously you look someone in the eye and you you have a conversation with them, and this skill set that they have to take us out of that to retrain us in an instant to talk literally to their hand instead of to another human face. It's it's a bizarre skill and it's just absolutely brilliant. Uh, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, it uh, incredible. But I think there's also something, you know, I think it, it, what, as you said, with Jim Henson's design, all the Muppets look so lovely. They just all look so, yeah, <laughs> I mean, everything yeah. looks so warm. And it's what was brilliant about like the dark crystal, like the Skeksis looked horrible. And he had a beautiful way of kind of uh, envisioning how how things should look warm or friendly or terrifying or, you know, uh, I think it just... I, I don't know. I, I I wish there was more of that imagination in a lot of what we see now. Being being cynical, there's so many programs or things that I watch now. It's like, oh, it's just a rip off of that. It's just a rip off of that. And I think yeah. Henson's stuff was like, no, this is this is the beautiful kind of dreamlike uh, visions that I I wish we saw more of. Yeah, I mean, just so genuinely original and so yep. genuinely funny uh, and just pure. Ah, oh, yeah, Tiernan, what a fantastic third guest he is uh we've got to move on to guest number four you've got such a great mix of guests so far and if tom waits wasn't your wild card i think guest number four is your (laughs) wild card Uh, yeah this is someone i don't know a lot about uh tell me about eric andre uh i love eric andre eric andre does the sort of comedy i wish i could do and i wish i was brave enough to do and i can't i know for a fact i can't and i think (laughs) all comedians have other comedians they idolize that do things completely different to them um eric andre is the most anarchic performer of our age and is just 
the Eric Andre show started. If you haven't seen it, every episode started with him smashing up the entire set with a massive baseball bat or bit of wood <laughs> and then it being rebuilt around him. Um, and it was it was done by Adult Swim and it was every second was completely offbeat. Some of it was downright disturbing. Um, and I, I went to see him live last year. He came to London. Oh, wow. And, um, and I just... Uh, I I've, I haven't laughed that hard in so I, I'm I'm a shit comedy fan right because I <laughs> love so many comedians but I will sit there and I'll go oh I like that joke oh you should have added that punchline oh maybe that bit should go on for longer you know and I and I can't help it and I, it ruins yeah, it for me yeah. Eric Andre made me dirty laugh like a kid throughout <laughs> without doing any of that analysis I just I I can't even remember what there was a bit very early on that was for some reason about him giving drugs to his like toddler nephew and it was so <laughs> base it was so base level but it was all just like uh there you go i give him cocaine i rub it in his eyes and he dresses wears his business suit and he carries his briefcase and that's it here's the deal and then we smoke some joints and that's it he passed out for the afternoon and it just went this this mad a bit robin williams-esque actually just this kind of it was so full throttle energy yeah and um and he had like again it's stuff that i think would almost be hacking someone's and he did like the cops theme tune you know that, that from that program cops bad oh, boys yeah. you know bad boys <laughs> yeah. and that's so old but he talked about how it was reggae but you know in in a system of police brutality reggae is the worst music to kind of portray these people and did a whole bit where he just sung <laughs> awful bits of police brutality, but in a reggae voice and it, and it ruined me. It's so, it, <laughs> it, he had moments of real political insight like that, but also sheer stupidity and real stoner comedy that I, I don't know. I, I again, it's just him and his mad brain. And I, I love it. And I, I saw someone tweet uh, yesterday, actually, that w- with this controversy about Ellen DeGeneres' show, yeah, they said actually yeah. they should replace Ellen with Eric Andre, but still call the show <laughs> Ellen and not tell anyone it isn't Ellen anymore. <laughs> and I thought that would be the most beautiful, the most beautiful thing ever. <laughs> I, I love that suggestion. What was your so first much. experience of seeing him? Um, was it his, his show or do you remember being introduced to him or? No, no, no. I, I, um, I can't remember why someone recommended the show, but somebody just says check it out. It's not like anything else. And I, um, and I did. I managed to. I think. I, I think I might have stolen it from the internet. Sorry, everyone. And uh, <laughs> and and I remember watching it and just being so excited that I was. Do you know what? It, it gave me a feeling like so. Um, I, I'm old, and I was a teenager <laughs> in the '90s, and. The in the nineties, I I thought comedy was so exciting. I, I on Channel Four, you'd discover late at night, you'd suddenly discover, say, Chris Morris. You'd discover Brass Eye, yeah. or you'd discover um, even Armando Nucci, like Friday Night Project. Or you discover these that was on on BBC Two, but you discover comedy programs that felt like you weren't meant to be seeing them, but you were getting to, and they were just the pure output of the person making them. They felt like you were getting to jump in the mind or the Adam and Joe show, things like that, that were just these mm-hmm. friends and spaced. These friends have made this thing that is exactly how you want. They want you to see it. And I, uh, as I said, I'm very critical. I, I don't mean to be so critical of comedy, but I find a lot of comedy now feels like it's gone through 12 filters and 15 producers and four writers rooms. Mm-hmm. And the Eric Andre show feels 100% like his brain has just vomited all over your TV <laughs> and you are getting a pure injection 
of his fevered mind. And I mean, we're now there's a real link between all my guests, isn't there? There's just this kind of purity, but you're just getting straight up what they are. And yeah. uh, and I I I just that's that's what I admire. And I I don't think I do it enough in my work, but I wish I did. I wish it's what I I strive to do. I know what you mean. There's uh, I envy so much when I see someone, and I get it actually a lot with. Uh, watching your comedy as well i really it feels to me anyway that you have found a way to talk about what you're passionate about certainly that seems to be as you said with your guests as well and it's something i would love to do that i don't i think i'm still too concerned with just hoping everyone likes me when I yeah but I, no, I have the same I mean I'm very touched <laughs> you say that about me but I, I have exactly the same problem I want to be liked and I think also you know I'm not in a position where I can uh, I, I've got to pay bills with my comedy wages and I think that, that often yeah. I'm aware that I just would like the gig to go well so I get pe- I get to come and do it again rather than yeah. go fuck this let's see what happens and I <laughs> and I, I really um you know, I, I really admire that in all performers when, when they do it and when they have the, you know, some some have a privilege that allows them to do it and, and perhaps are already famous. But when regardless, just being able to do it. And I think Eric Andre, his show was, you know, he wasn't massive before the Eric Andre show. The Eric Andre show made him massive. It was a very, mm-hmm. very low budget show. But if yeah. you watch it, it is, uh, it's, it's so beautifully nuts. Um I, I really haven't seen anything else like it. I mean, it, it came from like some, you know, there's Tim and Eric stuff, which is wonderful, definitely influenced him. You can see influences, but uh, his brand of comedy is, I don't know, it's just one of my favorite things right now. Yeah. I think as well, like you said, uh, all of your guests so far, very, very strong sense of self. And the what I saw of Eric Andre, I think is also true of the others, that sense of play, I think... Mm contribute so much like they they don't sort of worry too much about going into it with much of a a plan that they play they have fun and they find what they want to do through play uh and i think that's a really exciting way of working do you do you have quite a playful approach to your sort of writing or yeah i mean i i've been i've been trying to and and i think again the, the weirdest thing about this quarantine situation or the the lockdown situation and pandemic and all that is that without the i mean i'm very scared about not having any work obviously but mm. not having the restrictions of having to write for gigs means that i've written i've just um i'm telling you this like and nothing will happen with this but i just wrote an animation pilot that i've been meaning to write for about a year and it's completely bonkers um and it's completely mad and sort of adventure time style uh, imagination and it's that's what i love to write i'd love to write that sort of thing um and i've been you know writing articles and writing silly bits and it's really exciting to do that instead of I mean and, and I say this, I, I love doing my podcast every week because I can be very um the, the partly political broadcast and it's on a little break at the moment I, lo- I can be as creative with that as I like but I've also got a structure to it now and yeah. people like it in a certain way and even that feels restrictive and I really you know sort of almost wish that I had uh, I suppose you have to have the financial stability but also the the creative freedom to just go ah oh, today I'm making this and I don't care what it's like and whether it fails or not and yeah, yeah. um you know I think a, a lot of the time now uh and and especially in comedy now a lot of a lot of us are restricted by the fact that we have to 
you know survive and <laughs> we have to yeah. pay our bills with all of it um but also with what the the industry wants you know there was a long time where one of the major television shows one of the major stand-up shows in the uk um was, was turning down acts that it said were too weird for it and uh and and certain acts i know that had to find a set from 20 years ago that that was the first one they said was, was suitable you know and, and actually yeah. it's a real shame that there's not more of a push to go no just create the absolutely mad stuff you want to make um and there are lovely gigs like there's acms and and gigs like that that do do that but i i i wish it was even more <laughs> i just wish it was even more and it was the normal for all of us yeah yeah definitely do you find that that kind of playfulness like uh does spending time with your daughter like when you're playing with her does that help yeah. you feel playful and kind of is that a fun way of generating ideas or are you just so focused on don't eat that. Don't put that in your mouth. Don't touch that. Don't <laughs> electrocute yourself. <laughs> a, no, a nice mix. A nice mix. I mean, no, she definitely uh, helps me be really silly. I mean, this is uh, this is one of those things that I'm going to tell you out loud now and you realise that you should never leave the family. But it, for some reason, my, do- my daughter likes, she talks really clearly. For, she's two years old and four months, five months. I can't remember. I, time means nothing right now. I don't know. I know, where we yeah. Are. Um, <laughs> and so she talks loads and we actually recently had a, health visitor check that was online and the health visitor at the end of it uh, my wife's a, an actor and a writer as well and, and uh-huh. the health visitor at the end of it went your daughter is clearly the child of parents that are in the performing arts like, <laughs> i can't work out if that's a burn or not um but but like my, my daughter talks clearly but then she likes to make up her own language sometimes um i think it's the thing that kids do and the other yesterday she was talking to us and for some reason she says and then she said busting my dudes and then me and my wife just improvised a song called like busting my dudes playing my flutes and it reduced my daughter to tears and so we sang we just sang new verses to it for about an hour until my daughter was absolutely exhausted by laughing at it and and that sort of silliness is so lovely and yeah. i i would never have made a song called busting my dudes if my daughter hadn't come out with it <laughs> you know <laughs> Oh, that's so lovely. That's so yeah. nice. I yeah, it's it's one thing I really miss about. I used to do like a little bit of device theater and stuff uh, with friends, and I miss that playful kind of collaboration. Like, I love writing with the comics and stuff, and bouncing around ideas. Mm. But that sense of like that almost kind of improvisational playful attitude of just let's see where this goes and something might come out at the end of it no it's just gonna say that the improv is so important like it's it never caught on that much in the uk ireland's had quite a good improv scene for quite a while didn't it and and i mean obviously the states has got an amazing improv scene but yeah. it never caught on never caught on in england really in the same way uh, apart from in edinburgh for a month and uh there are certain <laughs> yeah. wonderful improv groups you know there's like the showstoppers who are brilliant and noise next door and i could name loads but but yeah. it's still in the way that in the States you've got, um, which in fact, my next guest is part of, but like, um, you know, uh, they, well, there's Second City and there's the uh, Upright Citizens Brigade. And they're real, like, they really establish people because yeah. you work in this and you learn the skills of improv and you learn how to bounce off people and you learn to really experiment and expand. And and, and again, I, I sort of feel that, that sometimes that's really missing. Just the, I, I was part of an improv group some years ago with, with brilliant Tara Flynn, who now is no longer a, oh, a wow. and, um, and and also Rufus Hound was part of it. And a few other, Michael Legg and a few other people called London Comedy Improv. Oh and I God. learned so much just, I was not, you, you weren't allowed to be a comedian because you weren't allowed to take the front stage. You had to bounce off the others. And it was a different mindset. And you suddenly go, this is really I don't know, opening. It really sort of opens up your creativity yeah. to have to go, I'm going to take what you've given me and turn it into something else. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was really exciting. That's so cool. Well, I mean, you mentioned your next guest 
let's talk about her. She is comedy royalty. Uh, yeah. Amy Poehler. I I just again I wish she was my friend. <laughs> I really wish she yeah. was my friend. I am, um, <laughs> but Amy Poehler is interesting. So I've just I've just um uh, over uh the lockdown we we mainlined. I'd never seen Broad City before, right? And I mm-hmm. and I think Broad City is now one of my favourite sitcoms I've ever seen in my life. I love it. And I I nearly put Ilana Glazer as a guest on this. Um, but Amy Poehler was the person that discovered um uh the, the Broad City team, and um. And, and and produced the first two series. And some of the advice she gave me, some of the wisest advice, when you, when you look at it, I won't go into it because if you don't know the series, it won't make much sense, but the some of the decisions that she that they were going to make and that she advised them against and, and moving mm-hmm. to later series is so clever structure-wise. Um, but I, I love Amy Poehler. I, I, I mean, obviously, I love Parks and Rec, every second of it. And again, the heart and the warmth in that show is beautiful yeah. and she plays it perfectly. But a lot of her improv and a lot of her writing, I think, is fantastic and and her um her autobiography um what's it called it's called it's, oh. i should have researched it shouldn't i it's called uh yes please that's yeah. it and and it, reading it is so uh, reassuring i think like, I, I you know i'm 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 not uh, a comic that's made it i'm not you know i'm not on telly or and, and she talks about how long it took her to get to where she wanted to be but how it was all about the people she knew and working really hard and working with all these people again and again and again and being trusted to do what she did. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if I find that her path to where she's got is very reassuring and relatable um, a, a lot of times. And I, I really admire that she is able to do what she does now. Um, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's, she is unusually talented. I mean, she, uh, my little interesting fact that I find out about her was that, She's one of only three performers in SNL history to be promoted from feature player to full cast member during their first season. And the other two were Harry Shearer and Eddie Murphy. And I mean, they're also comedy royalty. And that kind of just goes to show how talented she is. Were you a fan of her from her SNL days? No, I I came to her very late. So I I I was a fan of her from Parks and Rec and then went Mm -hmm. back to watch a lot of her SNL stuff after that and little cameos in shows and things so yeah. it's it's um yeah no i was i was stupidly late to the game and the same with like tina fey that whole sort of generation of brilliant acts that all came from that oh that um, th- there was just like a five-year period where snl the cast was just outrageous like bill Hader, kirsten wig will ferrell amy uh, poehler tina fey seth myers ridiculously talented cast and she was such a huge part of it as well yeah 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 and it's it's there's certain generations or or, you know you where you see that all these people have just sort of influenced each other and kind of fed off their goodness you know (laughs) yeah yeah and uh yeah i just uh i i don't know i think she's she's got um as you said she's just remarkably talented but there's something even about just her face and her look and she can pull a certain expression and mm-hmm. have me in tears of laughter. And I don't, I, I, I'm so in awe of that. I'm so in awe of someone whose body language is funny before they've even said anything. That's just, yeah, it. yeah. She's literally kind of got funny bones. Uh, yeah. I mean, what, what are you hoping that she brings to your dinner party then? I mean, just, just that sort of warmth and sense of fun, or would, would yeah, you be picking I mean, her mind bit, about things? I think, again, like a bit like Acacia Cortez, she doesn't take bullshit either. She's very brilliantly outspoken against things that are shit and yeah. um 
and I, you know, you kind of hope that you'd get a, a bit like, well, I don't know about Eric Andre, but with all the others, you'd get this kind of mix of really insightful chat. I think her, I think her ability to see, because like I said she worked on Broad City, she also worked on Russian Doll, um, as, as well as like a number of other yeah. things. But her ability to see what funny is and how to do it in, a, in an original and, and brilliant ways, I, I just really admire that. And not just in her own work, but the fact that she can see what other people do and take it and just give it some of the best advice and the best production. Yeah. Um, and so I think she'd offer some brilliant insights, but I also think generally she'd probably have a, a I'd hope that she'd be a real laugh. Um, not, not putting pressure on a performer to perform outside of performing. But I could just very much imagine that she'd have a drink and be a, a properly good person to chat to. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. hundred percent. Have you got like a fame or a favorite, sort of Amy Poehler moment or like a favorite sketch or movie or even an episode or cameo or something? Um, I don't know. I think there's still the, 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 the moment that made me absolutely love her. Right. So, so Parks and Rec, I didn't actually love the first season, which I think is a lot of people's. It's so uh, different. Yeah. It's, it's so, so, so different. different. Um, season two in that episode one, right in the opening bit, Amy Poehler does a, a stupid rap. That is, Oh God, I, it's so it, good. It's so like it's one of those immediate <laughs> genuinely one of the funniest things like i can't it absolutely floors me uh every time and it, it just that moment right there was when i immediately went you're so amazing <laughs> like, and it, you know and it's also i should say that i say comedy rap like that is an off-putting term to so many people because comedy reps are often so shit but trust me if you haven't seen it just watch it and I, I defy you to not be in hysterics. Oh, it's it's, it's just amazing. And like Nick Offerman is just the perfect foil for her. Oh, he's wonderful. I enthusiasm. mean, he's also nearly a guest for this. I nearly put him as it. I, I, his, I, I love Nick Offerman so much, not just for Ron Swanson, but also, um, actually, I didn't, I, I, uh, I went to see his stand-up show last year and I didn't love it. And it was, awkward. oh, wow. Um, well, it was very preachy and it wasn't very funny. It was all very, um, mm. and, and I use this term as someone who I'm too tired to be woke really, but I, you know, I try to be <laughs> as, as, as good natured as possible, but it felt very forced of like, these are the points I want to be making. And then like he forced jokes into them rather than it being oh, yeah, sort of naturally from him. And, and um, it's a shame because his book, Paddle Your Own Canoe, which his uh, biography is, is yeah. really beautiful and it very, very funny and very honest. And, um, that book was a book that I thought about for a very long time after reading it. Then, uh, yeah, he's he's another potential guest. I think he's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's a bit of an unfair brief for me to only allow you to bring five fantastic people. I mean, really, if this is your dream dinner party, invite as many as you want. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, on. we've only got time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's a I dream, but there you. are no rules to dreams. <laughs> I think we've just found the gaping hole in the format. Uh, well, they, I mean, they are such great guests here. And you've got AOC, Tom Waits, Jim Henson, Eric Andre, and Amy Poehler. Uh, you're sat either looking over beautiful mountain-esque Icelandic uh, kind of sea scene or on a fantastic Japanese balcony overlooking beautiful gorgeous japanese mountain range it, it sounds like it's going to be a hell of a night you've told us already that you love cooking yeah and so now i want to know 
what's on the menu for these brilliant people? That is a very good question. Um, I recently learned, I mean, this isn't that fancy, but I recently learned how to make properly good Singapore noodles. And I'm genuinely like, imp- I will boast about it. And I say I learned, I read a recipe that was actually the best <laughs> recipe that about it. Like, so I, I'm quite good at making curries and we, we uh, so I can make a really good mutapan here. But we've been, um, we've been making a lot of uh, Southeast Asian food lately. That's been the big thing because um, it's good and awesome. so yeah a lot of uh, sort of yeah probably probably a massive bowl of Singapore noodles with um, lots and lots of good things like vegetable tempura I'm a veggie so everyone else would have to suffer ah. my um, lack of meat I think everyone um, would be <laughs> fine with that <laughs> yeah yeah so some veggie sushi uh, veggie tempura probably do a mix of kind of Southeast Asian foods that's that's the uh, oh amazing that's the key. What, what's followed by some incredibly dirty dessert that is not at all <laughs> from anywhere just just insane amounts of ice cream <laughs> what goes in your singapore noodles um it's a mixture of what like it's do you know what one of the, the silliest things is actually with singapore noodles is often like there's a beautiful sort of orangey color that you get uh in singapore noodles and i just mm-hmm. never knew how to do it. and it's, it's simply a bit of turmeric which i wouldn't have used in uh southeast asian cooking because normally oh. use it in sort of indian cooking but um it's yeah. just a little bit of turmeric but it's um yeah, it's it's uh, there's a uh, Mira Soda is uh, she's done one book called Fresh India, one book called East. She's done others, but those two books I like live my life from now. Uh, Fresh India is all veggie Indian recipes that um, made nearly everything in it, and it's all so good. Uh, if occasionally far too much oil for a normal human being to consume, <laughs> and um, and East she's just brought out, and that is a mix of um, Asian sort of across Asian dishes that are all veggie or vegan, and it is the the Singapore noodles recipe in there is. My God, genuinely, it was like getting it from a proper top-class restaurant. I was oh, really impressed wow. with myself. Yeah, little things like soaking rice noodles for a while first, which I, I'm not an idiot. I know to soak rice, and I know to wash noodles. I know how to do noodles, but I'd never soak rice noodles for this exact amount of time that she said. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. came out the best <laughs> they've ever done. It's little things like that that are so exciting. Oh, that's amazing. That sounds like a meal that would make your guests very, very happy. Also, it's messy. You can't eat noodles without looking like a prick, right? Even if, like, yes. I insist everyone use chopsticks. I'd be that arsehole. And then <laughs> you can't you can't eat them without getting messy. There's no formality, right? You just have to tuck in and enjoy that, you know? That's and I like so that. good. It's a great equalizer. We're mm. all going to look like idiots. So yeah. let's just not be ashamed. Yeah, absolutely. I love that philosophy. oh man that sounds so fantastic Tiernan thank you so much for sharing all of that it it sounds like such a brilliant night Uh, when it's all summed up like that I mean does it sound as good as you'd hoped it would yeah, I'm really excited. I think I, I think I, I gave you two locations. I think it's got to be on a Japanese back. And I, I need I need the the nice weather. I think it's got to be on the the summer balcony <laughs> in, in Japan. Definitely. Oh, that would be perfect. And what are you having to drink? That's the only other oh, thing. Oh, damn! I That's a, I hadn't thought of that. Probably. Do you know what I I um I drank far too much. I hadn't drank for a while, and then lockdown happened. And I drank far too much for about two three months just to get through <laughs> it. And then uh, and I haven't drank for over two months now. I'll be like, I've got to stop. And um. And and actually, just an ice cold beer whenever it's been hot has been the one thing I've really craved. And so oh, God, I think, yeah. I mean, I, personally, my guests can have there'll there'll be all the booze on offer, but I I've got to have some properly ice cold um, ice cold beers. And there's a beer I used to like I, when I when I was a waiter many years ago in, in a Vietnamese restaurant in Canterbury. There's a beer called Huey that was uh, it's, it's still I can't find it anywhere. And I've been to Vietnamese restaurants that say they sell it and they're always out of stock. Um, but I would like that. I'd like a, a massive crate of ice cold whey. 
that sounds perfect. Uh, Tiernan, thanks so much, man. Uh, do you do you, are you you've mentioned your podcast is on a little bit of a break at the minute? Uh, but where can we check out your work and kind of point our listeners in the right direction if they want to experience more Tiernan Duya? Uh, well, yeah, so my, my podcast is partly political broadcast, and that it's on a break till September. It's going to come back in September. I just need a little breather from constantly reporting why everything the government does is terrible. Um, <laughs> but you can subscribe to that on all the usual podcast outlets. Um, otherwise, uh, it's mainly spelling my name. If you can spell Tin and Duyeb, then 10 points. And um, <laughs> I'm at Tin and Duyeb on Twitter. Uh, I'm, you know, my website's tinanddoyeb.co.uk, which is hopefully going to be updated soon because it's looking old and rubbish. Um, and. Lots. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? There's there's no gigs or things happening, but there's there's I'm I'm putting out lots of bits and pieces here and there. So I am trying to be creative and trying to look to my guests for inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's really exciting. Well, we will post links in the episode description to your website and to Twitter and to your podcast. Um, and whenever we're back to gigging, hopefully, I will see you at a gig sometime very soon because I love seeing you perform. Um. Tiernan, thank you so much, man, for doing this. Really appreciate uh, it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a proper joy, and it's lovely to chat to you. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, there you go. That was Tiernan's dream dinner party, and I absolutely loved it. Each week, I find it harder and harder to choose my own dream dinner party guests because I'm just like constantly fascinated by everyone else's choices. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, we'd really love it if you would like, subscribe, rate, share, tweet about, shout about, or just generally help us spread the word about the podcast. We love making it, and we'd be delighted if you could help us reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more from me, you can check out the Jericho Comedy Podcast out every Monday, or visit www.connormcreynolds.com. Tune in next week when I'll be chatting to another fantastic guest about their dream dinner party. But until then, thanks so much for listening. See you again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>